This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. Um, I can't remember if I'm supp- how what angle I'm supposed to have this at. It's been so long. I think you were supposed to. I don't remember either. Tom went away. Tom? He's leaving oh. us today, too. He's making us record it by ourselves. Bastard. Oh, crap. No, he's, setting, he's setting us up. He doesn't know how he's supposed to talk into the mic, and I can't remember what to tell him. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, am I up here? Am I down here? Is he supposed to talk into the top of it or the the front of it? The underside, perhaps? Maybe the left side or the right? <laughs> the front. Uh, the front. This is what happens when we don't record for a month. Oh, that's good. Right there. No, go back. Right there? Right here? Yes. All right. Okay. And when I'm done, what do I do? Just hit stop, save, and... Uh... Make sure I save it, is what you're telling me. <laughs> Ship it over to the podcast Dropbox folder? Yep. So now you're giving me other stuff to do. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this. Stop. You're I'm just, a, producer I'm now. just right. a developer. I don't know how to use these things. I just write them. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. So during our Rails 4.2 episode, we told everybody how uh, Rails 4.2 is twice as fast in most cases as Rails 4.1. And that didn't turn out to be the case, as it turns out, correct? Sort of, yeah. The the twice as fast number is specifically looking at like parts of active record, not necessarily your entire application, because your application may be spending more or less time wherever. But yeah, it was a lot slower than that. So this came about like just before the release candidate was to be cut. Yeah, about two weeks before. Okay. So Sam Saffron from Discourse uh, had run the Discourse benchmarks against it and found that they were 50% slower than they were on Rails uh, 4.1. So, you know, you got involved there and Sam got involved. And I think it was a pretty stressful couple of days for you. But those things did get resolved at least somewhat. What were the problems? Yeah, that's the thing. There was no, I wish there was a problem. Like this was one of those death by a thousand paper cut sort of situations. It actually made it very frustrating trying to track how well we were doing because every time I'd make a change, I'd benchmark. And everything that had regressed was like one millisecond slower in the context of a full request, which then makes it really hard to tell the difference between an actual improvement and noise from minor benchmarking differences. So it was basically a lot of running Apache Bench, which is a tool that will just hit a URL over and over again and tell you how long everything took to track our progress, and then a lot of profiling to figure out where the exact problems were. One of the more fun ones was uh, read attribute, which is a little bit of a hot spot. So it actually hadn't been doing any more work other than there were a few more layers of indirection than there were before. So the call stack was deeper, and then... Part of its signature is it takes a block. So um, when we wrote the delegation, we did ampersand block in the arguments and then ampersand block when we passed it along. And that's actually really expensive. And I, I had hoped MRI would be smart enough to go look at this and say, hey, you're only you're never using this block that you captured as a proc. You're just turning it back into a block and passing it along. So let's skip all of this work. So in that case, we had to replace the ampersand block with no explicit block argument. And then when we delegate, 
curly brace, exact arity of the of the block, yield that arity if block given, which sucks because that couples everything to the arity of, of lower level things, but saves us some allocations, which is really important in that particular method because it get, can get called hundreds of thousands of times in a request. So, but now when the arity changes, and for people who aren't familiar with that word, that's basically the number of arguments that something takes. So when the arity changes, that whole chain of things is going to blow up. Right, right, and and so we'll have to go in we'll and to make those corresponding changes everywhere along the along that pipeline. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned profiling, so that's something I don't ever really get a chance to get down to the level of doing, or when I do, I very seldom understand what I'm, what it is I'm looking at. So, like, sure. what kind of tools? What specifically? What about profiling? Were you looking at that helped you with this? So, if we're talking about Rails specifically, so that we've got a, prof- a great profiler in Ruby two and two one called Stackprof. And it's a sampling profiler, so it'll go every so many milliseconds of CPU time. It will check the current stack trace and just mark every single method in the current stack. And then at the end of execution, it can then print out all the results of like, hey, you were inside of this method this often. And it knows about like whether you were actually spending time in a method or that method just calls another method. And so that's why it showed up a lot. From there, you're just looking, if it's inside a method a lot, then it's spending a lot of time in there. That's the, exactly. That's what you're looking at. Okay. Yeah, the more, the, more, the more samples it has, the slower that method is, or at the very least, the more times you're calling that method. So spending a lot of time in something doesn't necessarily indicate that it's slow, but those two things tend to, tend to be correlated more often than not. And so for discourse specifically, since we had a baseline, which was their performance on 4.1, uh, there's a really great way you can visualize a profiling sample, which is called a flame graph. So what this will be, it, it, it gives as much information as humanly possible. So every sample is going to be a little square. And the color of it represents what chunk of the code it, it's in. So, for example, Ruby core standard library might be one color. Rails code might be another color. Some gem might be a third color. Your code will be a fourth color. And then it progresses left to right over time and then top to bottom with the depth of the stack. So it's actually a really overwhelming amount of information if you're just like looking at this to try and figure out what your performance is like. But uh, if you have a baseline to compare it to, it makes it really obvious when something's changed. You can spot like, oh, this was this shape before and now it's this completely different shape and it's way wider and there's a lot more purple there. So clearly whatever purple is is doing something slow that it wasn't before. That, that made like tracking down, oh, ARL's doing, there were three things in ARL that, that got really slow and that just became obvious because ARL basically wasn't on the flame graph at all before and then this time it was taking up several segments of it and each of those corresponds to one millisecond of time. Oh, that's, that's super useful because I've looked at the, like, the flame graphs that you get from the profiler in Chrome mm-hmm. and not really known what to make of them. But comparing a profile in state A to a profile in state B would have been like when I'm looking at it on, on its own, I'm like, well, is this a problem that it's so deep over here? Like what, right. what, would it, what would it look like if it performed well? So doing this as a matter of course or doing this as like, you know, we know it's slow right now. Let's take, let's take a profile. Let's make some changes. Is it faster? And what does the profile look like? Yeah. Um, seems like a good approach. And if you're just trying to track down slowness, I don't think flame graphs are a great way to do that. I think then the li- the just normal text-based output of like, here's the slowest method, here's the second slowest method, or I should say the method you spent the most time in, excluding time spent in children methods. So only time when it was at the very top of the stack. I think that tends to be a better way of just tracking like, here's the slow part of your application. Right. But then you have you have issues depending on because your your tool set changes right because like I've got 
so lately I'm doing Android, right? So I'm spending a lot of time in profiling Java code and Android code, and, and that tool set's very different. And then I spend a lot of time profiling JavaScript, and that tool set's very different. And one of the things StackProf doesn't do a good job of showing you is how much time you're spending in garbage collection. And then that becomes a whole different beast. If you're spending time in garbage collection because it has nothing to do with how slow your code is, it's how many short-lived objects you're generating. But it's definitely a good place to start for the most common performance issue, which is you're doing something slow. Okay. So you were able to take all this information, boil down a bunch of changes, and you were saying when we were talking earlier, one of the nice things was we talked about your work in Rails 4.2 on our 4.2 episode, um, specifically around the attributes API stuff you've been doing. And we talked about how it was nice because you had this nice sectioned off area of the code that was not related at all to active record base right. and had a single responsibility. So when there were performance problems that were related to that work you did, because the code was well factored, it was simple to add in like a caching layer that assisted there, right? Yeah, and that's the important thing too, right? Because these objects have like two public methods, one reads and one writes. So that makes it, you know, one place to add to the cache and one place to expire the cache as opposed to if it were a module mixed into active record base where there would be 16 different files, all of which were accessing the same piece of, of mutable state. And then it becomes really confusing when to clear, when to cache. Yeah, so... Well-factored code will help you a lot along along your um, performance refactorings, um, small public APIs, things like that. Yeah. I mean, it just comes down to premature optimization is the root of all evil, right? Because breaking right. out objects will be slower. Yes. You shouldn't just guess at a performance improvement. Like, you shouldn't be like, I, I believe this to be faster. I'm going to do it in the absence of an actual problem or any way to measure your results, right? Yeah. And then once you've got the code that you would have written if you didn't care about performance, once you know where your hotspots are, it tends to be really, really easy to fix them. Right, exactly. So that was kind of like low-level-y detail of performance stuff that you necessarily have to care about because Rails is like a large library used in many different ways that you can't possibly conceive of at the time you write it. So I feel like that level of performance profiling isn't something that you typically get into in your typical Rails application, correct? Sure. I mean, when you're talking about performance, you always have to separate out kind of the micro-optimizations from the macro-optimizations. And in the context of a framework, or sometimes very rarely in, in like your application, you will have a piece of code that is called so frequently that a micro-optimization can turn into a macro-optimization. But you have to be, you know, you always want to be able to demonstrate that tiny little thing that you did that made almost no performance difference was, in fact, being hit often enough that that added up to something big. But usually in a Rails app, yeah, I mean, n plus one queries bugs are, are more likely than something that requires profiling. Right. In, a, in Rails apps that we come onto all the time, or even in our own Rails apps, it's not like we're immune from this. Typically, if there's a performance problem, it's an n plus one query, or it's missing database indexes, like just forgetting to index your foreign keys or something simple like that, or maybe not your foreign keys. Maybe it's, you know, you're querying this data in a way that we hadn't originally anticipated when we wrote this migration, so we need to add some additional indexes here. Yeah, That type of thing I feel like is much more common, or there's client-side things that are like, you know, make sure you're limiting the number of assets you're serving, concatenating, minifying, make sure, you know, there's network-related optimizations you can do, like putting far-future headers on things to make sure that your Rails app doesn't even have to uh, bother responding with a 304 not modified it can just you know the browser will just serve it out of its local cache without even asking right. so there's things like that you can do we had a fun one related to network stuff on on marshall codex where we realized that 
like our biggest performance problem once we got the engine kind of cleaned up our biggest issue was just it took forever to download the animation files i don't know what the anal- analogous operation would be on like a normal rails app but what we did was created a new binary file format and encoded our data in that so that it went down from 20 some odd megabytes to just under two megabytes and then was way faster to parse as well because json at 20 megabytes is it does take a little while yeah there's there's an article that we can link to in the show notes which will be at bikeshed.fm slash four you can find the show notes there links to things we talk about things like that but there's an article i think it was I think it was from Code Climate. I'm not positive I'll have to pull it up, but where they talk about how if you're about to use JSON for something that's potentially performance-related, perhaps you should investigate protocol buffers, which are right. binary-encoded ways to transfer data, and they're going to be much faster. So it sounds like that's not exactly what you did, but it, what you went to was a binary format, right? Yeah, we could have probably gotten something similar with protocol buffers with almost the performance. Um, We've got a couple of really clever little things that gained like an extra 400K. Um, Just knowing like the domain-specific knowledge, like this float is always between 0 and 1, and it increments in 1 over 2048 uh, increments. So we can just multiply every float by 2048, send it as a 16-bit short, and save half the space on it. And then just uh, divided by 2048 back on the client side. That project you were on also had like, so this this was something that was, you know, I guess network related, transfer related. But that project you were on also had a lot of performance constraints that are, I would say, are definitely atypical of our usual applications. Because <laughs> our usual applications don't have strict CPU, GPU, memory requirements, correct? Like extremely strict. Right. Well, and you're usually not sending dozens of megabytes of data over the wire either. True. So there is that problem. And then, you know, you had to do a lot of optimization in the OpenGL stuff. Yeah. I mean, the whole world changes when your code has to finish, not just your code, but all code, including the operating system, the browser and anything else that's running has to finish within 16 milliseconds or you miss a frame. So that's that's one place where premature optimization may not be the root of all evil. (laughs) Right, like no, no, I mean, I guess no, premature, I mean, but you just need to be way more cognizant of it. I feel like is that not true? Like, I mean, I haven't, no. op- I haven't operated in that circumstance before. So, I mean, I wrote, I wrote the thing just like I would have any other application. I paid absolutely no attention to performance. Most things were naive and immutable. Once we finished, uh, I profiled it. First thing was when I added animation, the frame rate went from sixty to less than ten. <laughs> and profiled that and it was just it was a single method where so it's a keyframe based animation so every joint will have like various spots at which it was recorded and they may or may not sync up across joints and so for a given time what we want to do is like we need to find the last keyframe that was before that time and the first keyframe after that time and blend them yep and so you know the naive way to write that would be a for each write so you start at the end and then when, when you find the first one that its time is less than or equal to the time then you return that one and the one after it and that, that was our big bottleneck. Like mm-hmm. we were spending 70 some odd percent of our time there. So it was a sorted array. So we just wrote a binary search. Now, unfortunately, because it was a specifically less than or equal to constraint and it was the last one, like a normal binary search implementation, which would just take a comparator function, wouldn't work here because we have to work on the current element and the one after it to determine if we found the right one. So it was like a handwritten binary search. But I mean, knowing little stuff like that was very helpful. Cool. But that was the only place like everything else was fine. Oh, okay. So never mind. I guess you didn't have to worry about it as much as I thought you were going to have to worry about it. I feel like a, a few months ago, I or maybe maybe a month or two ago, I don't know, um, I came across a presentation from Eric Michaels over called Writing Fast Ruby, and we'll link that in the show notes as well. And what I really liked about it is he 
basically boils down a bunch of things you can do in your everyday Ruby code that are not only faster than what you may already be doing, but are also better looking and yeah. like more pleasant to deal with. And I thought that was a really interesting look at performance. And it's not like if you were doing things the other way, you would run out and make all these changes immediately. But just being aware of these things and having the benefit that, yes, they're faster and also they're more pleasant to work with. So one example was symbol to proc over a simple block. So if you can boil something down to symbol to proc, then um, the performance is going to be better and it's, the code is going to read a lot clearer. And we talked a little bit about this in our Sandy Metz's Rules podcast, episode number one, about how symbol to proc reads a lot better. And it's also often a lot shorter, yep. <laughs> costing you fewer lines in your five-line methods. Well, I thought it was funny, too, because he opened a pull request uh, in Rails, like finding every line of code that could be converted to symbol to proc and, and doing it. Right. But it was really funny because symbol to proc originally came from active support and then eventually got added to Ruby. But when it was in active support, it was significantly slower because it was having to allocate a proc object every time, whereas Ruby now can optimize that away. And so if you get blamed a lot of the lines that he was changing from a block to a symbol to proc, the very last commit that touched that line was somebody went through and removed all uses of symbol to proc because it was so much slower back in the day. Right. <laughs> so he just basically undid that work from however many years ago. Another one that came up in that presentation was if your method takes a block, you have the option to either yield or call block.call. And yielding is always faster and also mm -hmm. looks nicer. It's shorter. So even if you don't think it looks nicer, at least it's fewer characters. That's a good that's a good metric, right? <laughs> um, so there's like these are these are Ruby specific, but I feel like almost every programming language where there are there may be several ways to do things, you can find these things that are that are both nicer and faster. So if you can kind of be aware of those, again, you don't have to run, I don't think you have to run out and like change all your code because especially if you're dealing with an application, right? If you're dealing with a library, these are fast enough that if it's an often used method, you're, you're going to see some returns. And if you're dealing with a library, you can't always know, like we said earlier, you can't always know the use cases for it. So you have to be a little more concerned about how you might be screwing up somebody else's application. Yeah. So yeah, check that out. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was we got into this a little bit in our JavaScript episode was the culture of micro benchmarking. So I feel like especially in JavaScript, there's a strong culture of I know there are three ways to do this and I want uh, which way should I do it? Well, I might as well just do it the fastest way. And let me and how do I figure out the fastest way? I go to JSPerf and I set up a test, which sometimes if you look at the tests, they're often imperfect. And I run this JSPerf statement and it tells me how fast it is on my browser. And then it also tells me how fast it was on anybody else's browser that I can get to run this test, right? right. And we talked a little bit about this, that the JavaScript runtimes have um, optimizers that if, a co if code's being run a lot, it, it changes the way the code executes. Yeah, that is the nice thing on MRI is it's very deterministic in its performance characteristics. Right. So those micro benchmarks, like unless you know you have a problem, like at my last job I wrote a library that did internationalization in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. So, and I just like, we, we used a, we used an existing library that we weren't particularly happy with. And I looked at the code and I was like, this is far more complicated than I want it to be. And I know there are areas like this is definitely slow and we were having some performance problems. So I, so I said, okay, well let's sit down. And I sat down with uh, my friend Yair and we got to work basically rewriting it in a way that like we could understand what was going on. There were, there were functions pulled out that like told you what was happening and it just used regular expressions on strings to look for like interpolations. Mm -hmm. And we pushed that up and we were pretty happy with it. <laughs> and then as soon as we pushed it up, everybody's like, whoa, this is really, really slow. 
And so that's where, you know, we looked at it. I mean, the first thing was like, okay, these regular expressions aren't fast. How can we do this without regular expressions? And then because we were specifically having these pain points, that's when we turned to JSPerf to be like, I have several ways I can scan this string to look for interpolation markers. Which way is going to be better? This code is actually going to get run a lot on every page. So let's try and do the best we can to, to tune that. And we were able to, I don't remember what the result was. I think the result was we ended up using while loops where we wouldn't have necessarily considered while loops and trying to track like where the open interpolation marker was found and where the closed one is found, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then saving and then caching that, of course, right. and you're not doing that every single time. So the caching layer helped and then how we scanned for the actual markers helped a lot. Right. So that solved that problem. So that I, th I felt like that was one way where micro benchmarks did help, but I wouldn't turn to them. Like if you're just like, oh, there's three ways I can write this, which way is faster? Nah, don't think about that. Just think about which way you would actually prefer to see it in the code. Yeah, no, I mean, like one of the policies we have on Rails that I think is just a good way to go about this in general is that if you submit a pull request and you're saying like, this is making it faster, we want to see both a micro benchmark that demonstrates that the code that you wrote specifically that line is faster than what was there before and also a macro benchmark that demonstrates this is something that was causing a performance problem at all in the grand scheme of things right so you're not going to change code for trivial performance gains basically right because it does introduce a risk even if you know it looks perfect to everybody you never know yeah okay so let's say you're in one of your one of our typical Rails applications, you know, uh, we talk a lot about Rails, but you might be a Python Django developer or something like that. But it, the situation is basically similar. So let's say you have a performance problem. It's not an N plus one. It's not a missing index. What are your steps? What do you do? How do you, how do you go about this? Look at New Relic. Look at New Relic. Okay. So New Relic is basically an agent that runs on our machines. And if you're not familiar with it, it reports a bunch of performance things, right? And yeah. I'm always a little overwhelmed when I log in. If I'm, if I'm just logging into New Relic to check on the state of my application, it's kind of useless to me. But if I know there's an existing problem and I have a vague idea of where it is, it's like, oh, I can drill down over here and it shows me where are we spending all this time? Is it in the controllers and rendering views? Is it, you know, what's going on? Right. I mean, like things that tend to be common in web apps anyway. So if you're in some framework or language that has an ORM, for whatever reason, that tends to lead to people over-selecting data. So, like, if you're only using two columns, selecting just those two makes the result set that you have to iterate over way smaller. Sometimes you can even avoid building up the objects. I never default to that, though. Like, would you default to just selecting the columns you know you need? No, I would do it if I had a page that was slow. Okay. So, yeah, because, like, I wouldn't default to, like, oh, in the view, I only need um, these three fields, so I'm only going to select these fields. But then, you know, somebody comes along and it's like, I need this fourth field. Now I've got to go edit this select. So sure. if you have an existing performance problem, maybe looking at selecting less data, particularly if some of that data that you can discard is sizable. I think it's an easier change to make, too, if you're writing a JSON API. Right. Just because you're, you're, you're much closer to exactly where the object's going to be used and how. Correct. The other thing you can do is if you can, like, if you're building, like, a typical case would be you're, you're building a list of objects to be used in a dropdown in a select box. If you can express that in pluck rather than building up entire objects, then mm -hmm. that's going to be faster still, even than selecting fewer. Because the difference between select is going to still return you the objects. So, it's, so if you're doing a select of a subset of columns on user, you're still going to get back user columns. But if you do a pluck, you're going to get back an array of arrays or just an array if you only pluck one column. But Right. And it's worth noting, too, that at least in Rails specifically, an array is cheaper than an active record object because an active record object will allocate a lot of other objects as well. Correct. 
so what else is there? What else can we do? So, so we had this problem on ter- on uh, this application we worked on. The code, the, the the repo name was Turpentine, but we had this problem there where we were basically what the problem was. We were just rendering a lot of things on the page. It was a dashboard page. We were rendering a lot of statuses and comments, and there would be you know thirty, forty statuses on a page. There was a poll. There was all this data. Then each status you could click to expand the comments, and we had you know as we suggest naively, we were just rendering all of the comments, right? Yep. So. I remember there, there were several steps we took, which was like, step one, let's not render all the comments, right? Let's render right. the last five comments and then do like Facebook where you say, uh, load more, you know, click here to see more. Yeah. And that saved us a lot. And then when you came out of the project, you added the Russian doll fragment caching. So what were some problems with that? How did that work out, I guess? Well, I mean, cache expiration is hard, Right. right. The easy one to solve is, um, this was especially relevant on a dashboard, is if you're doing relative dates, those have to start being done in JavaScript because you need to just send a timestamp that doesn't change as opposed to eight minutes ago, which in one minute is not going to be valid anymore. And then the other one we had was just, we had a pretty tree-like data structure, right? A post has many comments, but then we also had this weird little case there where a comment has a user and we're displaying the user's avatar and the user's name. And they can change either of those. And we're not going to go expire everything the user's ever done whenever the user changes. So you, it changes depending on, I think, the needs. We had the lucky case of just users couldn't change their name, if, I'm, if I recall correctly. So that one was a non-issue. Correct. Um, but but then they like could av- change, yeah, they could change their avatar, which we displayed all right. over the place. And that one's just solved by having a deterministic location for the image URL. Yeah. So that way if they change it, it's at the same place and it's just a different image. Yeah, I think we ended up dedicating a route to the avatar for each user. Yeah. Which worked out really well. Um, and there were things like we had to store the last commenter and that would actually show on each status. It would show like the, a small avatar of the person who was the last commenter. Right. Um, so we had to cache that onto the status object so that we could easily put that as part of the cache key. There were some areas in the application that... I think we ended up just pulling these out for performance reasons eventually, but there were areas of the application where if you were an administrator, you saw some additional UI. Mm-hmm. Like on the dashboard, you'd see a little additional UI. Maybe you could like delete the status if it was offensive or something like that, um, which happens so seldomly. But now that there was this dependency on the current user, or I guess on the current user's administrative status, mm-hmm. um, we had to add that to the cache key as well. I mean, a dependency on current user for the cache key makes the cache just a single user cache. But... It was slightly better than that in that we could say the cache is not on the current user but on whether or not the current user is an admin. So that helped a little bit. Well, and then there's this really dangerous part of this too, right, which is because by default, caching isn't going to be enabled in development. If you enable it in production, right, it's a no-op in development because you're not going to have Redis or whatever you're using as the back end spun up. And then if you get your cache key wrong and you don't realize that you have a dependency on current user, it's not going to blow up. It's just going to display the wrong thing to future users. So then you accidentally show your admin Chrome to everybody. Mm-hmm. Or in our case, we had a bug that made it out to production where nobody could see the results of a poll because we were caching the poll partially and didn't include whether or not the user had voted in the cache key. Right. And then we had additional problems that were I'm trying to think of what it was. Oh, we had some um, JavaScript form. So when you build a form in Rails, you can say remote true, which makes it an Ajax form. And those forms would be cached, but when they were loaded into the page, they were not the uh, CSRF tag that's associated with that form submission mm-hmm. was not updated to be the current CSRF tag. 
So we ended up having to uh, write some JavaScript that did that. And I think I submitted the pull request to jQuery UJS, which I believe got merged. Yeah, uh, it did. So that actually gets done for you whenever new things are bumped onto the page. So that's useful. Or I think maybe maybe it just happens on page load. I think that's what it is. Yeah, so on page load, any forms will have their CSRF tag updated to, any remote forms have their CSRF tag updated to whatever is in the header of the page currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a hook so that if you do paging, mm-hmm. you can have you know an event that says, I'm paging in more things. And you can say, uh, if you paged in any forms, can you please update the CSRF tag? Huh. So there's a public API for that, I believe. I might, if there's not, there should be, or it should happen automatically. <laughs> Check the show notes to find the thrilling conclusion to that story. <laughs> okay, so caching, which comes yep. with a whole host of problems that you need to be careful about. I mean, the, the development environment thing bit us a couple of times, a few times at least, until we got those cache keys right. Yeah, well, and then we just started, when we did change to anything that was being cached, just started switch, changing our development environment to enable right. caching. And then we'd have to throw out the entire cache every time we deploy. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a bummer. But Oh, yeah, because we were using helpers. Yep, because if you change a helper, you know, Rails fragment caching doesn't know about that. So, yeah. oh, well. Um, Don't use helpers. <laughs> yeah. So some other things that you can do. You can rely on your database more often for more things, right? You know, we already talked about missing database indexes, things like that. Um, but there's also like compound indexes for if you're searching on multiple fields, you can create an index out of, you know, all of those fields. And the order in those compound indexes matter for when you want to use them with less than all of those fields. So you should put the more more commonly queried things in the front, things like that. And you can get an idea for those by looking at the output for how long a query is taking. And you can highlight like your longest running queries, run an explain plan on them which I think in development Rails automatically explains anything that takes over. I don't know what the, what the threshold is, but in, if, you look in your, if you look in your development logs, you'll see explain plans automatically output for your queries that are slow. Um, and so a skill that's useful to have is reading an explain plan, and it'll tell you, you know, if it's using an index, what indexes it's using. It's really frustrating when you're like, it should be using this index. Why isn't it using this index? It's worth noting, too, that the um, plan that gets generated on production, where it has a real data set and a lot of queries going through it, so it was able to set up its analysis correctly, can very frequently be different than what you'll see in development mode. So you should be checking the explain plans on your production database. Yep, that too. So those are your indexes. So check those. Uh, The other thing you can rely on your database more for, and we did this on Turpentine as well, was you can use database views in place of complex queries that might be either multiple queries in your application or one super complex join or something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's something that's just a su- one super complex query, it's still going to be that super complex query in your view. But on the Ruby side, at least you can have like a single object that you can still have an active record base class or active record as something that extends active record base, an active record model um, that points at that view. It just can't be updated in basically all cases. Don't worry about updating it. Um, right. <laughs> So we did this for full text search where we created a, you know, they, we wanted to search on posts, articles, comments, uh, users, a few different things. So basically we created a query that uh, returned all of the things we ever cared about to search on. And then with Testacular and some database indexes, we're able to put in place a really fast, snappy full text search. And Caleb worked mostly on that and ended up doing a conference talk, which we'll link in the show notes as well for that. Yeah, so that ended up being something that Caleb and I, we took the work we did on that and extracted a gem called Scenic, 
which tries to make it nice to work with Postgres views in active record migrations. So that's useful. Yeah. What other tips do you have? Move everything to the front end all the time, immediately. <laughs> Move everything to the front end. Oh, God. You're... No, not really. <laughs> I'm trolling. Don't okay. worry. Uh, um, I vastly prefer to debug these things in the back end, let me tell you. Yeah. No, well, no, and, that, and you've also got... You know, if you look at what Twitter has been doing lately, where they've been improving their performance by moving things back to the back end so that you can make certain performance benefits, that is really a superset of ultimately at a certain scale what you always have to do, which is just stop putting everything on the page. Have the server respond with just what's absolutely necessary immediately on page load, and then anything that they might need a second or two afterwards load that asynchronously. Right. And the other big the other big thing is callbacks. If you're doing any callbacks, like sending mail or anything really, like the question oh, yeah. the question to ask is, can you do this asynchronously? Can I do this with a delayed can I just stick this in delayed job, have it kick off immediately, and return something to the user that says, like, yep, that's in progress. Or even if like a lot of these like sending mail, you don't need to tell them that's in progress. You just say, Yep, check your check your mailbox. Right. Um, there's no need to hold up the request for that. Or fail the request if the message fails to send for some reason. Right. That comes down to don't do anything that isn't required to send the response back to the user. Correct. So I feel like that covers the server side very well. There's a whole host of things on the JavaScript side, on the client side, JavaScript and CSS, basically. Like there's a whole field popping up now around responsive web design. Right. I don't, I don't really know anything about that. But then there's a whole other area of like mobile performance when you're, when you're actually doing things on a mobile device. Yeah, because you have less RAM than a mechanical pencil. <laughs> Correct. And I know you've had some frustrations with that recently. So what's your experience yeah. been there? Well, so some of it's specific to Dalvik, which is Android's old VM, which is being phased out. Um, and some of it's just mobile in general. But you, you, you do have to think a lot more about CPU cycles. And on Dalvik specifically, you had to think a lot more about short-lived objects than you ought to because its garbage collector was worse than MRI in 1.8. And that is not a statement I make lightly. And that's getting better. But the profiling tools aren't nearly as good as we have, especially for for client-side. Chrome's tools for debugging performance problems are probably the best set of tools I have seen in any language or platform. There are Java performance debugging tools out there. They may or may not work with Android. Same on iOS. Like there's just there's only the tools that Apple specifically made, which may or may not be good enough for your needs. They can give you some insight. I mean, you do have a profiler, and that's good. Um, one of the things you can't easily do is track object allocations, though. So if your issue is you're spending too much time in garbage collection, or in iOS it would be you're spending too much time in reference counting. There's not a great way to automatically say, like, here's where I'm generating a bunch of objects that are just going to die, and I might be able to somehow optimize this to allocate fewer objects, short of doing your computer science thing, looking at your algorithm, counting allocations, tracking it, following the life cycle of an object, seeing when it's happening in a loop. Space, you know, space complexity can be measured in big O, just like time complexity. Hmm. I haven't had to do any mobile development other than, like, you know, developing a website that served... Uh, with responsive web design, basically. But I didn't even sure. do the responsive web design part of that. And, I mean, the things that I would concentrate there are similar to, like, what we talked about way earlier in the show, which is, like, making fewer requests, making sure you're sending only what's necessary, uh, making sure your cache editors are set properly so that the clients can cache things uh, appropriately. Because even though most people have, like, something like an LTE phone, at least in the United States mm-hmm. um, and Europe, 
um, in Asia, I guess, uh, <laughs> you have these LTE phones that are really fast, but the latency on these mobile networks is really poor. So, and not everyone has LTE. Correct, sure. But mobile speeds are faster than, at least for me, and for, I guess, most people in the United States, are faster than you know what we probably had when we first got cable modems or something like that yeah right definitely and we thought that was blazing fast but the problem on mobile networks is definitely latency so the fewer requests that you can make the better yeah no if you're if you've got an api backed mobile app and you're having to make more than one request to display a screen that's almost always a problem and then like one really common example of a place that's easy to introduce a performance issue on mobile because you don't tend to paginate right you have the list and then you're scrolling through it and so one of the things is as you're scrolling through, the operating system's going to request from you, hey, I've just scrolled far enough that I need a new cell. And so for performance reasons, what you want to do is not create a new cell if one of the cells that has gone off the screen recently was the right view subclass to use. You want to just recycle that. And you are at least partially on both platforms responsible for doing that recycling and so it's really easy to accidentally not do that. And then you're just creating all of these new objects and then you run out of memory. Hmm. Or doing a lot of work in your render loop or in your, in your views render method. Uh, that's, that's another one. I mean, it's really the exact same thing, right? It's doing more work than is necessary to display the information to the user. Right. That's what these all come down to. And like all of the same things apply, right? Like build the things how you want to build them naively. And when you have a problem, address it. Uh, if you have well-factored code, you're going to be able to address those problems more swiftly. Yeah. So it's another reason to have very well-factored, small public APIs, things like that. And I find when you're profiling and doing performance optimizations at that level where you really are, your code is what's slow. Um, I think the two simplest ways, assuming you don't have some algorithmic improvement you can make like switching to a binary search, assuming your code's just got overhead, right? Usually... I find the two easiest things you can do are either make something lazy or introduce caching. And both of those are much easier to do on well-factored code. Right, exactly. What else? Do you have anything else we wanted to talk about? Uh, I think that's all I have. All right. You want to tell people where they can get in touch with us? Yeah, if you have your performance problems and you'd like us to, <laughs> like to tell us your horror stories about debugging them, you can get us on Twitter at underscore bike shed, or you can email us, which is hosts at bikeshed.fm. Uh, you can find the show notes for this episode at bikeshed.fm slash four. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Thank you for listening to The Bike Shed. We'll see you next time. Ring, ring. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>